how many of you are dreamers? Like, I go into these deep dreams. I mean, like real places in my dreams. And what's so weird is I revisit places I've been to in my dreams before, but I don't know if they even exist. One of those dreams that I go back to frequently is this um, parade in my hometown. My hometown looks better than it's ever looked before, and there's this great parade that goes through the main street and turns a corner. All the marching bands, all the horses, all the tractors and floats go by. And after um, the, the parade departs, I look down on the asphalt, and nobody else can see what I see. There's a bunch of shiny metal things. It's coins. And I'm going all over the ground picking up quarters and nickels and dimes. I'm not even bothering with the pennies. They can, they can stay. But I'm getting, and my pockets are getting filled with change. And I'm thinking... Why do I keep going back to this dream? There's other dreams where I'm like floating on a canoe through space to planets, and I have no idea why I keep visiting this dream, these, these places in my dreams. Maybe they're a visitation of the future. I don't know what it is. But dreams are a part of our lives. If you don't dream at night, I bet you do dream during the daytime. And what I mean by that is you dream of life as it could be. You dream of what you want to see happen in your life or in someone else's life. One of the most famous speeches ever given on American soil was given by a pastor, the civil rights leader Martin Luther King. And the title of the speech is known as, I Have a Dream. And in it, he casts this picture of what he dreamt that life in America would look like if we would treat one another with dignity. And in some ways, the dream has become a reality. In other places, we're still wondering if the dream will ever become a reality. Well, over the last few weeks, we've been sharing with you a dream or a vision we have for Pikes Peak Christian Church has four key pieces to it. That we would be a church that's connecting seekers, people hungry to grow spiritually, be connected to Jesus and to his church. We want to be a church that's growing believers, that's rooting them deep in the scriptures and helping them fulfill all the things that God has in them for their future. We want to strengthen families, to help families grow strong, bring Christ into the marriage, into the home, and we want to impact communities, the communities in which you live in, your neighborhood, your school, your place of employment, even communities around the world. And it's our best attempt as we prayed and, and talked together as leaders to interpret Jesus' dream for this place. Jesus has a bigger dream in which we get to be a part of it. It's a dream for his church. Now, I know the church is on hard times today. People are discouraged by the church, disappointed with the church. Many have been hurt by the church. Many are confused by what the church is about And many see the flaws within the church. And Jesus knows very well, and we know, that the church isn't perfect. No church is perfect. It has blemishes, and it has stains. And yet the Bible says Jesus still loves her very much. He he calls it his bride. And I believe that if you look beneath the surface of all the, the stuff that's going on in churches, you will find oftentimes a strikingly beautiful, incredibly powerful church that in the midst of a world that's crazy and chaotic and dark, that it becomes the light on a hill that not only gives light of truth, but the warmth of love. I don't know where you stand with the church today, but if you're someone who's been turned off or hurt by the church, I hope you'll be um, energized by Jesus' church. Uh, If you're someone who stayed away from the church, you've never been part of it, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, and you don't know if you want to be associated with the church, I hope that you enlist in this greatest army on this planet. And if you've been someone who's been in the church for decades, and you've kind of grown passionless, gotten a little lax in your faith, I hope that you will rally up and realize the stakes are so high and the privilege so great in what we are, are able to do as part of his church. We're going to look at, a, at the dream Jesus had for his church. It's found in Matthew chapter 16. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up. If you have a um, bulletin, you can flip over and take some notes on the back side there. But before we actually read the story, I want to pray. I always like to pray before we read scripture because I believe that our hearts are like soil 
And if the, if the soil's not open, the seed can't penetrate it. And the way we open the soil is by opening our hearts, by actually inviting God to speak to us. And so let's do that right now in prayer. Father, we come before you asking you to penetrate our hearts with your truth, asking you to remove the hardness, remove the resistance. And Father, all the distractions that may be in our hearts right now about lunch and what's going on the rest of the day or even the week, we pray right now we can be in a place where we can hear your voice and respond to you with a resounding yes. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Matthew chapter 16 is this time in Jesus' ministry where he's been taking 12 disciples around him. He's been, he's been growing in some popularity in different pockets in the Jewish regions. People have been coming out to see him heal and deliver from demons and to hear him teach. But in other areas, especially among the religious establishment, Jesus has created controversy. They don't like him. They're trying to stop him. In fact, they're, they're going to go so far as to want to kill him. And so Jesus is entering this place called Caesarea Philippi. It's a Roman-controlled area. It's not Jewish, so they don't have the scriptural background. They don't have uh, a lot of religion except for the Greek mythology. In fact, Caesarea Philippi is located at the base of Mount Hermon, which is, uh, was, on that mountain was a temple dedicated to the god Pan. And yet Jesus walks with his disciples into this city, and he asks them a most important question. And so we read that. In Matthew chapter 16, you can follow along either in your Bibles or on the screens with me. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others still Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. This is a dream, a dream that Jesus has, and it begins with this question, who do people say that I am? And the disciples spot off a bunch of different answers. Well, some say you're like John the Baptist or Elijah, reincarnation of one of the prophets. Jeremiah, you're a great man. And Jesus doesn't argue with them. He doesn't question them. He doesn't tell them they're wrong. He's wondering what they think because they've been walking with Jesus for two years. They've seen him do the miracles. If anyone believes in Jesus' identity, it ought to be them. So he asks them this question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter gave this incredible response. You are the Messiah, or some of your Bibles say the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, nailed it. Nailed it. And you didn't come up with that idea, Peter. It wasn't from your own intuition. It was from my Father's revelation. He gave it to you. And that is the truth of who I am. This truth that I am the Christ. And what Peter was saying was so profound Because for thousands of years, the religious world, the Jewish community, was awaiting the Messiah, the anointed one, that there would be one called the seed of Abraham, the one who would strike the serpent's head, the one who would bless all people, the one who would truly give forgiveness of sins, the one who would be the king that would reign forever. This Messiah was to come, and they were waiting for him. And Peter says, it's you, and it's now. All of this history finds its fulfillment right now in you, Jesus. You are the the answer to all of it. 
And, P- and Jesus says, you got it right, Peter. And from there, he then launches into this dream of what's to come for his church. Jesus has a dream. He dreamed of building a church. He says it very clearly. And I will build my church. The American definition of church is kind of fuzzy. When you talk about church, a lot of different things come up in people's minds. For example, if you say, um, where's your church? You could give a physical location or an address. It's, it's that place on that corner. It's that building. The church is that building. Or, or it could be part of a denomination. You know, I belong to the Lutheran church or the Baptist church. Or it could even refer to Sunday services. Are you going to church Sunday? And so it could mean all those things. Unfortunately, none of those are truly the biblical meaning of church. In fact, you might be disappointed to find out that the Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. And it's the very first time it's ever used in the New Testament, first time Jesus ever talked about church. He says it right here. And it's not even a church word. It's not even a religious word. It's a, it's a secular word meaning a gathering of people. People who come together for a specific purpose or common calling. It could be a political gathering. It could be a family gathering. But Jesus says, this people will gather together around a specific purpose. He is building a church. Well, the disciples might be scratching their head going, okay, this, this, you're building a gathering of people. There's 12 of us. Okay, There's, It's not real big right now. And, and there might be a few others scattered around who want to be part of it, but it's not really that great. How big is this church going to be? They have no clue it's going to be like a mustard seed. That's the smallest of seeds, yet grows to this huge tree. This church that Jesus is, is describing right here, this gathering of people, will gather in, in communities like ours all over the globe. Millions of people gathered around this. That's what Jesus sees in his dream. He sees, he sees millions of people gathered together as his church. But right now, the disciples don't see that. In fact, Jesus has very little momentum. He's got some opposition. He doesn't have a huge following. And worse yet, is he follows the scripture in Matthew with this promise. Found in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Not only is Jesus saying, hey, we're going to build this church. It's going to be great. It's going to have a lot of people. By the way, I'm not going to hang around to do it. In fact, the dreamer who, who wants to execute this plan himself will be executed. Jesus saying, I'm going to be killed. And you guys are going to be the subcontractors to build this church. And what they don't realize, in fact, they're going to kind of push against Jesus. If you, if you go on and read Peter saying, no, no, Lord, that, that could never happen. And Jesus says it must happen because this will become the fuel that will drive the church. In just, uh, just a few months, Jesus will be crucified, buried in a tomb. He'll be raised from the dead. And these men who uh, have been kind of a disorganized motley crew, they're filled with fear. They're filled with pride. They're filled with um, jealousy. They're, they're filled with all kinds of stuff. They're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're going to go forward with incredible boldness. And you know what they're going to preach? Their message will not be, hey, we have a church down in the corner. We have services on Sunday at 10. They're going to go out with great fire preaching this message. There was a man that the scripture says would come, would die for our sins and rise from the dead, and it's Jesus, and you need to know him. And so they would go all over preaching this message, and people would give their lives to Christ, surrender, be baptized, and then they would help share this message with other people. It was this story that would drive the church, the gospel. And here's what happens, church. 
Our job is not to build the church. My job is not to build the church. Church doesn't belong to me, doesn't belong to our elders, doesn't even belong to the members. We don't get to decide what we want the church to be and do. We seek the Lord. We seek his heart. What does he want his church to be doing? And what he wants his church to be doing is elevating this story, the gospel story, and then get out of the way so that people see Jesus. And what they talk about is not the preacher, the music, the programs, but they talk about the Lord they love and serve. It's all about Jesus. I will build my church, Jesus said. And I don't care what label you put on it, on the church building. At its heart, it needs to be a church that belongs to Jesus Christ and serves his purposes. Jesus has a dream, a dream of building a church. It's a church, he says, in this dream that will be built on a singular confession that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. What is the thing that unites believers? There was a school teacher asked her elementary kids to bring a symbol of their faith and what united them. And so there was a little boy who, who had a star and he said, well, this is the star of David. And she goes, that's right, because David was the greatest king of Israel. And he said, yes. And there was someone else who had a, a, a necklace with all these beads and uh, he said, you must be Catholic. He said, that's right. These are the, my rosary, my, my prayer beads. And then another little boy stood up there, and he had a big Pyrex casserole dish. And she just was really puzzled and looked at him and says, what's this? And he just smiled and said, I'm Baptist. <laughs> if you've been Baptist, you know what I'm talking about. The potlucks. <laughs> what is it that unites believers? Jesus says, Here, here's, here's what it is. It's this confession. This confession. See, he is going to lay a cornerstone in this dream. Cornerstone in biblical times was very significant to a building. Buildings primarily were made out of large rocks that were chiseled out of limestone, granite, or marble, precisely cut, firmly placed next to one another, and you could build great buildings that way. Many are still standing centuries later. And when they they laid buildings, they would lay a cornerstone. Now, typically in, in our day, Cornerstones, cornerstones aren't essential to buildings. Cornerstones are usually built, a, laid a, a few bricks up, and they are more decorative with dedications and dates. They aren't essential for the building of the building, but in biblical times, the cornerstone was the, the stone which was laid, and then everything else was laid according to that stone. Now, I, I know something similar to that. When I built a retaining wall at our former house, I had these 40-pound bricks, several pallets of them, and I just spend many, many hours laying a trench and putting sand down and leveling things to make sure that very first brick was put in the exact place I wanted it to be, and it was exactly level in all directions, because then I would just lay the bricks next to it and start stacking the bricks one upon the other, but that first brick was kind of like the cornerstone brick, and Jesus said, there is going to be a rock which will become the foundation or cornerstone on which my church will be built. He says it, on this rock, I will build my church. So there's been a controversy all through history what that rock is. Because in the Catholic view, the rock is Peter. And part of the reason that's believed is because Jesus reminds Peter who he is. He says, Peter, you just stated who I am, that I'm the Christ, son of the living God. You are Peter. And the word he uses there is Petros. In the Greek, here's what Petros means. It is a small um, stone or boulder, a detached stone or boulder, something you can pick up. It says, Peter, you're, you're, you're like a rock. You're a rock. And many believe, well, that's it right there. Peter's the rock. But he doesn't say, on you I will build my church. 
He says, on this rock, it's a contrast. You are a stone. You are Petros. But he uses a different word when he says, on this rock, it's called Petra. Petra is very different than Petros. Here's what Petra is. It is a mass of connected rock. It is like the rock you find under the soil. That's the bedrock. You cannot pick up that kind of rock. You cannot pick it up and put it in your pocket. You can put a Petros in your pocket, but not a Petra. In fact, the gender in, in the Greek language, there's feminine, masculine, and neuter words. And Petros is a masculine word, but Petra is a feminine word. They're not even the same gender of words. So he's making a contrast. Peter, you know, you're, you're a good guy. You're, you're a rock. You're, you're like a stone. But on this rock, on this rock, I will build my church. So what is this rock? What is the bedrock? Well, it's the confession he just gave. What you just said, who I am, it's me. I am the rock, Peter, on this rock. I wish we could see Jesus' gestures in the Bible because he may have got really fired up about this and says, Peter, on this rock. I don't know, it doesn't say that in the Bible. But I picture Jesus going, on this rock, I will build my church. And we see Jesus called the rock. He is the cornerstone on which the church is built. It's the confession of Christ that becomes the cornerstone of your own personal faith. Excuse me, Paul says it in Romans chapter 10. The entrance into the family of God. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is the confession that unites us. it's It's what we come together to praise and worship and serve. This Lord, this rock. I know Peter knows this. He knows it's not himself. You know why? Because sometime later, Peter wrote a letter, 1 Peter. And in the second chapter of that letter, Peter says this about Jesus. See, I lay a stone in Zion. This is a quote from the Old Testament. A chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation upon which the rock in church is built. Let me ask you a question. Who do you say Jesus is? I know they were asked about the the community and the disciples were asked specifically themselves. But I want to ask you. Who do you say that he is? Many today would say he's a good teacher. He's a, he's a model citizen. He may even be a prophet. But do you say he's the Christ? The Messiah? The one who's sent to save us all? See, you'll get asked a lot of questions in your life. In a few weeks, my son's going to stand before a, a minister and be asked, do you take this woman as your lawfully wedded wife? Big question, isn't it? Sometimes you get asked questions, will you, will you take this job? Will you accept my offer? Is it a boy or girl? Which college are you going to go to? You know, all, all kinds of big questions you'll get asked through your life, but none is bigger than this. Who do you say that Jesus is? Answer it right, and it opens up the gates of heaven. Get it wrong and be kept out forever. It is a huge question that each one of us must answer. You cannot look to me for your answer. You cannot look to your parents for your answer. You cannot even look to your spouse for the answer. You must answer it yourself. Who is Jesus? And I hope you can unashamedly and proudly proclaim he is the Christ, my Lord, my Savior, the only true living God. That's the singular confession that unites the church. You'll find churches all over the the world doing a lot of different things. Different music, different buildings, some different theology. But at the core, this is what makes a church, a Christian church, a church of Jesus Christ. 
this confession of who he is. Then the dream goes on. It's a church, he, he, he says, that's steadily advancing in a hostile land. He says, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This little band of believers would start to grow. And if you read through the book of Acts, there's 3,000 people and there's 5,000. It's just growing, growing, growing. And uh, they never had buildings to meet in other than the buildings that existed like temples and homes. And so in the first few centuries of the church, as they were being opposed by the Roman-controlled powers, oftentimes they had to meet in private. They met in catacombs, uh, cemeteries underground. They met in places wherever they could, gather together to worship the Christ. They did. But then something strange happened after Constantine came into power in the third century. He gave Christians freedom to worship. And in fact, he himself converted to Christianity. And all of a sudden, Christianity became this acceptable religion, and people started to flock to it and became organized. And you had church buildings built, and you had traditions established, and you had hierarchy within the church established. And as the church got organized, here's what else happened. It got fossilized. It became rigid. It became structured. It became lifeless. And it began to strangle the movement. Yet underneath that, the church continued to be restless. And those who truly wanted to follow Jesus continued to do that. But those who kind of adapted to the cultural church started to find that only those who had power had the authority to read and interpret the scriptures. Only those in power had the authority to baptize anyone. And all the, all the people had to do was just show up. In fact, there was a period of time in the early, early days where it was against the law to have any portion of scripture in your possession. And all through history, the, the church grew in its power and it grew in its abuse. And there's horrible things tied to the church through the crusades and inquisitions that are shameful. But then in the period just preceding the Reformation, people started to rise up and says, we need to make this book available to the common man. And so the Bible began to be interpreted in the common language and distributed among people. And those in authority didn't like it. Some people decided that they themselves as adults wanted to be immersed, baptized, because they, they didn't know what happened to them when they were babies. They didn't believe that a baby can make a decision, but they as adults says, we want to accept believer's baptism. And you know what happened to some of those that were baptized? They were tortured. There's, there's a whole thick book I've seen called, uh, called uh, uh, Martyr's Mirror, which is a story of the Anabaptist movement of people who were tortured, stakes driven through their legs, stretched on tables, burned at the stake, put in bags and drugged through rivers, because they chose to be baptized. Those that translated the Bible, one of those men, William Tyndale, was tortured at the stake, was burned. And guess by, guess by who? Guess who, guess who, who killed those who were being baptized? Guess who tortured those who were translating scriptures? The church, to protect it from heretics. And yet the church continued to thrive, continued to grow. And as the Reformation came and Bibles became available to people, the church began to grow and people began to read. People began to give their lives to Christ and the, and the church began to spread and go all around the world. The gates of Hades, he says, will not prevail against it. What is the gates of Hades? Some of your Bibles say the gates of hell. It really is the gates of Hades because Hades is the place of the dead. And the place of the dead is a place where once you die, you can't get out. We all know that. You don't get to come back for a second shot. Once you die, it's like these gates are established around it. The gates aren't around the church. We don't have to pray for God to put gates in a hedge around the church. 
God doesn't want us to stay in this place. He wants us to get out. He says the gates are around the places of the dead. Now, where are the places of the dead? There's place for the physical dead, and there's places for the spiritual dead. And if you're outside of Jesus, you're spiritually dead. In fact, whether you admit it or not, you and I have all been spiritually dead. And some of you still are in that place. Ephesians chapter 2. When, when Paul writes to the believers there, he says, As for you, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. All of us were part of it, you and me. We, we followed temptation. We fell into sin. We put ourselves under the power of an evil ruler called Satan. And he has set up reign on this planet because we've surrendered to him. And it's as if he's put up gates saying, saying, you on the outside stay out. These belong to me. And yet Jesus says, not even those gates around the realm of the dead will prevail, my, prevail against my church as it moves forward. That's why we are always thinking outwardly. We're always thinking of advancing. We're always thinking of taking enemy territory because any single person that's out in the world that's fallen prey to Satan and part of his kingdom rightfully belongs to Jesus. Jesus paid a price for every single person to be redeemed. And so our job is to claim back for Christ what rightfully belongs to him but has been taken hostage by the enemy. We have a lot of uh, soldiers in this room. You know, I've talked to a lot of men before. I don't know a single man that says, you know, I'm going to sign up in the mili- for the military because I want an easy job and I want to push papers the rest of my life. I know the men and women that sign up for the, the Army and Navy and, and all the armed services because they want to engage in the battle. And there's something, I think, within men that we like fights, whether it be MMA, boxing, or pro football. You know, we like to see people getting smashed and tackled, and you know, that's just kind of wired for that. We're wired for the battle. And so when you get in the military, I know a lot of guys that says, you know what, I want to go to Afghanistan. I want to go to Iraq. I don't want to sit here all the time in Fort Carson and just keep preparing, preparing, preparing. I want to go get in the action. I know I could die. I know I could come back wounded. But I believe in the cause that the cause is worth it, and I'm willing to pay a great sacrifice for that cause. Well, men, I want to tell you that there's a greater battle out there. It's not the battle in Afghanistan or Iraq. It's a battle for your own heart and soul and the heart and soul of your family. And there's an enemy who wants to claim it and kill it. And if you want to get involved in the battle, that's the battle of your life. It'll take the rest of your life to, to uh, do arms with this enemy. And it's going to cost time, and energy, sweat, and tears, it'll call for the best of you. But when we gather together as a church family, it is why we get so excited when we share in the victory of someone surrendering to Christ, and why we scream in victory as a church. It's why we sing with great passion, because we believe in Jesus, and we believe his church will prevail in the end. We want to be part of the winning team, and this is a cause worth investing ourselves in. I don't know what your dream is for yourself, your business and your family and your house and your investments and all that, but I can't think of anything more exciting and adventurous, dangerous, than pouring myself into the very thing Jesus was willing to spill his blood for, his church, and the souls of men and women that he desires to be part of it. Jesus has a dream. Jesus has a dream of a church built around a singular confession, a church that not even the gates of Hades would prevail against. 
So I want to ask you, when, when you come to church, when you come to Sunday morning service, why do you come? I hope you come like a team coming together to get direction, to be impassioned, to get redirected or bandaged up, to be inspired to go live your life passionately for Jesus Christ. We don't come just to go through the motions. Our goal isn't to conduct services, it's to change cities. We don't come just to be informed, we come to be transformed. Nobody wants to waste their time. Nobody wants to take their Sunday morning and spend two hours sitting in hearing somebody blab away and go home the rest of your day. You want to be encouraged and, and fired up and realize you're not alone in it, but there's hundreds of other people who are linking arms with you to make it happen. You know, this summer I was reading through several books and it came across some statistics that really bothered me. See, there's some trends going on in the church that are very disturbing. One of the trends is the financial support of the church. I want to show you this graph. It just shows a trend. When you look at older people in the church from 70s and the 60s and those that are 50s and 40s, 30s, 20s, what you'll find is a graph that goes discernibly downward in the support of the church. You'll find the, the, the most generous givers, the older ones. And the least generous givers, the younger ones. And part of the reason for that is a lot of the younger people don't believe in the church anymore. And they don't trust in the church. And here's what's going to happen. If the church continues with that trend, there's going to come a day where churches aren't going to have buildings and paid staff because we won't have funds to do that. Maybe that's not a bad thing. But here's another disturbing trend. I want to say, by the way, thank you. Thank you to those of you who've been faithfully given to the church. We couldn't do what we do here as a church without the faithfulness. And so I so appreciate those of you, especially the older in the faith, who give your social security checks, give of your retirement. You make sure the church can continue to move forward. Thank you for investing. Because sometimes you look at things saying, I don't know where the church is heading, and yet you still faithfully give. But here's another trend that's disturbing. The same kind of graph goes toward attendance at a church. And those that attend the church, let's show the next graph, there it is, are older for the most part. And you find fewer and fewer people participating in church when you go to younger and younger generations. Here, here's the problem. Our generation, the generation I live in, we may be better givers, but we failed in reaching the next generation. And, and here's where the church is heading. It's very possible in the next 20, 30 years, you're going to see more churches than currently closed. More churches across our country shut its doors for that reason. There'll be no financial support and there'll be fewer people attending. And so we as a staff and we as a leadership and we as members of the church constantly wrestle with this issue. How do we communicate our faith to the next generation? How do we share Christ with them? How do we give them the vision of what the church could be and bring them in and link arms together? We need older people. We need younger people. We need to link arms together and say, let's go do this thing together. Let's go fulfill Jesus' dream together. When you look around the church, don't see a certain segment of, you know, they're, they're out of touch, they're irrelevant. No, we need, we need all the maturity of the older ones. We need all the energy of the younger ones. We need all the faith of both the young and the old to come together. And so I'm going to ask you to join with me today to fulfill this dream, this dream of certainty that Jesus is going to build a church. He'll do it without us if we don't want to participate with him. This vision of unity that, that we're rallied together, not because of, of, of anything else, but this truth that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God, our Savior, and that this church will ultimately reign in victory.